Okay, Twig, let's not avoid the text. Greetings there, S.E. Land. This is Twig. Anthony Twig Wheeler here with another episode of Twig's S.E. Reflections podcast. This is an audio archive meant specifically for somatic experiencing students and practitioners everywhere. All you fine folk that are out there studying the psychobiological literature and somatic healing arts, applying that to your work with your clients in the helping professions. My name is Anthony Twig Wheeler. I go by Twig. You can find me at liberationispossible.org backslash reflections. Here we are with episode 95 of a project that is finding completion at 100 episodes. Episode 95, After the Accident. I've been thinking about this for a long time, trying to find my way to talking about after the accident style sessions and moments for SE practitioners, myself included in that, in trying to, you know, what, what would I say and, and how could I be of help? There's a lot out there. There are some things out there. There's a book, an important book, helpful book by Diane Poole Heller, Crash Course, that's out there. There is a lot um, of focus. There's a lot of focus. There's a lot of focus in our trainings that we do around accidents and events and falls, things that happen that were unexpected that, you know, catch a person off guard, does them some kind of shocky business, perhaps bodily harm included, fumbles with the rest of their life, could fumble with the rest of their life, could be just something that happens and moves on. You know, accidents have a broad spectrum. One of the reasons that I think that we've thought so much about accidents, I guess, is that a big reason that Bob Scare, Robert Scare, came into relationship with the somatic experiencing world and Peter Levine and helped to write books that have been very important for us in terms of like trying to name out what's going on in the brain and the nervous system when the traumatic reactions in place. He's not the only one to have done it, but he's been super helpful for me at least. I, I kind of gotten a lot out of what he shared in The Body Bears the Burden and The Trauma Spectrum and such. Well, Bob looked at accidents. He worked in a pain clinic in Boulder, Colorado that focused on helping people deal with head injuries as consequences of accidents, a large subset of which were influenced by slow accidents or accidents at slower velocity than you would anticipate a head injury from. So they were like five mile to now mile an hour car accidents. And afterwards people would end up with, or some people would end up with debilitating pain. And it was Bob trying to figure out how to help those people and try to understand what was going on with these kind of more minor scaled accidents that could in effect cause a ripple effect that kind of devastated a person's life. And he'd be like, you know, what's, what's going on in there? And that led him to 
getting to know Peter Levine and somatic experiencing and actually him being really involved in developing the new traumatology and the literature around the new traumatology. As far as that goes, we could we could go back further, you know, to the 1800s railway accidents, the railway spine, when they first got railways traveling with people, you know, they could kind of like the story of the industrial revolution. They got the, the train going, got it going too fast, didn't really have the brake process, the modulation process worked out, and they would have accidents over bridges with other trains, around turns. It was a thing. It was a big thing in Britain, the United States, Australia, throughout the early 1800s. And there were all these medical claims after the fact and kind of lawyer claims about injuries sustained and kind of felt sense injuries sustained after these events. Nobody called them felt sense injuries then, right? They had nervousness and sleeplessness and agitation and and all the kind of somatic cues of what we would now call PTSD. And of course, at the time, it was a big contested thing that maybe these people were malingering or just trying to settle a lawsuit or some such. Very rarely understood for what it was, in truth, real. A real painful thing to be in an accident, to be traveling or some other kind of thing, and suddenly get whacked. Big thing. And it goes all the way back to railway spine, one of the first uses in the traumatology literature. Accidents, it's like a big part of how trauma has become a thing that we we recognize and pay attention to, and why you and I have actually probably spent an inordinate amount of time, private time, other time than just working on our profession, the obligation of work, but like kind of reading into and trying to understand what's going on inside of people when they get into danger and then when they get out of that danger, why they feel like that danger's still happening, why some people can feel that that danger lingers for a couple of days, for a couple of weeks, for months, for years. And other people just kind of like, oh, they just want to walk right through that and wash right off and, and move on. There's that. What's the difference there? And then from our profession, of course, as practitioners and helping professionals, it's kind of like, what's going on in there that makes it so that people who are still lingering in the stress response, the traumatic reaction at that point, like what's What's the physics of it, in a sense? What's the biomedical physics, as Peter Levine's studies helped us to see it as, not just a psychological phenomena, but a biophysical process happening between signals going on in the brain and the body in different subsystems, as in the polyvagal theory, signaling, what should I be doing? I'm not quite sure I should be fleeing or bracing or running or letting go or confusion, poop, poop, poop. You see all that come together and you wonder, as a practitioner, how do I help people with those problems? Because of course, that's who ends up coming to us is people who have been through accidents or bad stuff that's happened and they feel stuck and, you know, impacted by it, understandably so. 
things impact us. We rarely meet with, at least in these professional settings, as practitioners, folks that went through accidents and, well, it was pretty much like a kind of a a thing that happened and then it was not something they paid any more attention to and they moved on and did other things. There's a quite a spectrum of how accidents affect us. And to think about it, since accidents are not only theoretically helpful in the field and a major part of our session process with clients in talking about their past accidents, accidents are also something of a niche in modern society. There are a lot of accidents. A lot of people have accidents. Things happen to a lot of people. That's somewhat disproportionately understood because of mass media. But at the same time, like, you know, there's a lot of velocity going on now that didn't used to go on. And there's a lot of two things trying to occupy the same space at the same time. Most primarily, of course, from car accidents. But there's just a whole lot of bumping up against things that happens to people. And so there's, there's a kind of a niche, you know, there's a niche and there niche to help people feel better after accidents. There's physical therapy and doctors, and there's, there's all this kind of process and somatic experiencing practitioners and this traumatology field, like there's, there's room, you know, you'll probably, probably see this. We're going to see this, right. We're going to see like just short term, accident therapy that's SE and maybe other trauma modalities informed, you know, rather than the process that we go through now where after an accident, we're taken off to the hospital and go through a series of x-rays and, and, you know, baseline reads to make sure that we're not hurt if it gets to that level. And then we're released And three, five days later, we feel just completely shook up and horrible and awkward and everything. We go back to the doctor and then they they give some pain medication to kind of like pull it down and maybe a prescription for going to get chiropractic or physical therapy. And those are all kind of like cultural responses to this event, an accident and you know, your mileage can vary by going through that process. And well, I could, I could, I could just tell you here, like if I could avoid that process, I would, (laughs) you know, if, if I could get into a different track after an accident that was psychobiologically informed I, I, I certainly would choose that. And so if, if that track starts to become available and shows some efficacy, I suspect that it'll become its own kind of cultural response, its own niche, in which case there'll probably be a masterclass sometime soon concentrating on how practitioners can do short-term therapy for supporting people through accidents or after accidents. Just some wild speculation there on the future to come, because this is a real thing. We've got a kind of skill set that we study systemically, the broad scale, you learn all these 
processes for meeting with all these different types of people when you kind of become an SE practitioner, which is good. You want to, you want to do that. Even you want to do more of it. You want to become like completely artful and, and super masterful and you just get super complex and everything. And inside of that, of course, there's several different niches. There's several different kind of primary concerns that have people's attention that might bring them into contact with you because you're a practitioner doing this kind of work, but they don't want everything else and they don't need everything else and you don't need all the other skills in order to help them with that problem, which once that problem is solved, they're ready to move on and they do. And that would be kind of like the dentist. Well, all that speculation aside, the thing that I know is that in the last six months, I've thought I'm going to do an episode on after the accidents and somewhere I got to frame what I have to offer there. And I, th- I thought I'd, I'd share this. For me, I find being a somatic experiencing practitioner to be a real opportunity, a gifted, a, a, you have to work for it, but it's, it ends up being this extra gift of an opportunity to do good things, kind of do your best, kind of help out, kind of make a difference to do good things. Well, in one, well, maybe there's a bunch of places, but in one place it really helps you to do something good is helping people just after they've had an accident. You know, in our practice, in our daily work, suppose you're seeing, I don't know, you're seeing 10, 12, 18, 24 clients a week or, or more, you know, you're in whatever situation, the majority of the people that you're seeing didn't just have an accident. Now, maybe they had an accident at some point in their lives. Maybe that's part of what they've coming to you is some kind of related response to it or a confusion ever after from it or some such. Maybe you could track back a syndromal condition like we were talking on the edge of mentioning with that Bob Scare literature that the kind of true confusion of the nervous system can easily come up if the earlier dysregulation was in place and a small scale threat like an accident came across it and said, okay, that I can't handle this anymore. And it just led to the, the real confusion of the syndromal conditions. It's like, we might be dealing with accidents in our sessions with people as common practitioners on a so- somewhat regular basis in the sense of the longevity of the impact of accidents. But it's somewhat rare that you see somebody who was just in an accident, particularly in comparison with how many other sessions you're going to have with people who weren't just in an accident. Unless, of course, you work in some kind of emergency response, first responder kind of situation. Or you're uh, maybe a, a physical therapist and you're seeing people on the quick edge of after they've had an accident and they've ended in up inside the medical system stream of things. For the most part, you know, it's like accidents are happening out there, but they're, they're 
they're spotty, <laughs> which is good. We, you don't want everything to be crashing all at once. But out there in the world, it's kind of spotty and you just live your life and you have your sphere of influence in a certain kind of circle of things. And some accidents are happening somehow in relationship to your sphere of influence. And only rarely does one of those accidents influence something that you get to come into contact with and that you actually get to help a person soon after they've had the accident. But when you get that opportunity and you are an SE informed kind of practitioner and somebody who, who really kind of gets, oh, wow, there's something going on here. There's like a real physicalist, psychobiological response going on here that is, it's got some, it's got some tricky, jangly moments that if they're not attended to accurately, correctly, you could end up, the person could end up with problems that if they are attended to accurately, oh my goodness, it might not actually be that big a deal that you just went through this accident. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons that it could still be a big deal. Changed your car, lost your car, got, you know, problems with other things that work, lots of things, but it could be like something that kind of ruins your life if these psychobiological signals aren't attended to accurately enough that you get to more or less walk away from the nervous system impact of having gone through this accident, or you end up with that nervous system impact, it's a little, it can be a little bit of a choice point that makes for days of recovery or two weeks of recovery or two months or years of potential negative influence from something that way, way, way up toward the beginning, right toward the beginning, if the more accurate support, the more psychobiologically informed support, the kind of, you know, yay, yay, somatic experiencing style of like, hey, we can titrate our exposure to helping the allowance for the reaction to move through and be experienced and more or less extinguish itself as it goes here and resettle the system before it gets a longer period of time of reinforcing the stress response, the activation signals that say something's wrong here, something's bad here. And rather than have those signals become entrenched because they last too long, if a person who's just gone through an accident could get more or less the signal soon enough that says, I'm going to be safe enough that I can come out of that stress reaction. Oh, you know, this bad thing that might have been really, really super bad or might have been kind of not so bad, but it was going to compound other bad things and go on for longer. If the right signal could come in early on, could make a huge difference. And it's one of the, I think it's just like one of the great gifts of having invested all of this time and money and thought and practice of learning how to guide people's attention and learning how to support people's attention 
in directions that are more pendulated, more supportive of kind of like noticing differences and oscillation cycles and activation and deactivation, like having been able to see arousal in people's physicality in their tone of voice and their eye constriction and their facial muscles and their tension in their body or the spaciness and the, the distance that they end up needing to take sometimes. Like being practiced at seeing all of those physicalist expressions, physiological presentations in people's behavior, you can meet with somebody soon after they've been through an accident in that kind of big category of, you know, bad stuff that happens that's kind of shocky, comes on quick. There's almost no warning that it could be like car collisions or falls, but it can also be scary stuff, which just hits really, really super hard and, and really jangles you up. It's the sense of something being super quick and out of your control. A lot of times it relates to gravity and velocity. You know, it's like it happens that suddenly it elicits self-protective responses, but the vast majority of them are probably unable to get executed before the impact happens. And afterwards it leaves you kind of stunned and startled. And in fact, right there after that, the process is still trying to complete and stunned and startled and shaken after the accident is kind of like a hard way to go off into the world where there is this biological process that's trying to maybe could say like come back down to the ground and some of it's going to take longer. For some people it's going to take longer. Some people it's going to take less. You know, we've got that whole range of responses to these kinds of things, but there. For everybody, there's just this stereotypical pattern that needs to happen that would establish increasing signal of settling away from the danger and decreasing signal of repetitive somatic and felt sense cues that the danger is still happening. And when you're practiced as a practitioner and you've kind of gotten some skill at guiding people's attention, asking them what to pay attention to, knowing what you want them to pay attention to, all of those kinds of things. Wow, it's super, super good use. When you come across somebody who was recently in an accident, and now here's the personal part of this, is that unless you're in certain fields, certain environments in your work, um, like ER or physical therapy or something like that, the chances of you coming across somebody who was recently in an accident and you being in the practitioner role is kind of slim. Yet you might be in that area, you know, you've got your sphere of influence in your life and an accident might happen inside of your sphere of influence in your life, in your whole personal life and such, that may not always include you already in the role of you as a therapist. 
like your friend might have an accident and now you're not, you're not their therapist. They're not coming to you for therapy, but all of a sudden your friend has an accident and you have these skills or uh, another common one. And it, it fits almost the same thing, but it's slightly different, but it'll lead to similar considerations that I kind of think we, we want to look at here. It's like one of your clients or one of your friends or somebody who has no contact with you per se as a therapist, they ha- know somebody who has an accident. And by one means or another, it gets established that they're going to come see you because you might be able to help because they've been shaken up by this accident. And now all of a sudden in their search for help, this possibility that you might be helpful, have some help to offer comes forward. And the next thing you know, you're meeting with somebody who isn't your client, never intended to be in therapy, isn't somebody who has any practice to it, but they're now coming to see you at your home or in your office, or you're going to see them at their home or in the hospital, or it's like some kind of new, different kind of thing. And it's just a little different. It's especially different because this person now is caught in the stress response. They're actively experiencing themselves in the stress response. And you're there with the potential of being able to help them, but without any of the coordinated feedback process that you have back in your private sessions with people where you've been able to cultivate the relationship of, quote, doing SE together. And so now it's your friend or family or colleague or, you know, distant relative. It's somebody who was like at church and they were in an accident and you you heard about it and you said, well, I might be able to help. Or it was one of your own clients who said, oh, can you see my brother who was just in this accident? He really, he'd never go to therapy, but he's just having this really hard time. And he said he'd, he'd kind of be willing to come in and see you. There's more likelihood of getting to practice with people who were just in an accident or recently in an accident, more likelihood that you'll encounter them outside of the context of your normal process as a practitioner. But yet you'll still be in this unique position that you might be able to help in a really important kind of way. What potential So I think the way to go about this is to kind of drop into it. Just drop into the fact that this is a thing. This is an opportunity that some of you and I have sometimes that either amongst our clientele or from our friends, acquaintances, strangers, the magnificent serendipities of the universe along some train route someday, we happen to be the person who gets to be with somebody soon after they've been in an accident. And it's kind of like, well, what, what would we do? And what would, what would matter there? And what do we have to think about? And 
how can we be the best help? Fortunately, thinking about it this way only helps whatever we do professionally in our offices, right? When we are helping clients to renegotiate past traumatic insults, past pains and falls and dangers and all of that, the same principles would apply as what we have to do right when the event is still fresh in the mind. It just happened yesterday and it's all I can think about. It's just a week old and it's been making me sleepless ever since. There are unique considerations for both of these and they share a whole lot in common. So this is great if we look at it from the perspective of what are we going to do for our friends when they well when they've been when they've been bumped. Let's look at what we could hope for first. You know, we could we could hope that they're not hurt, you know, not physically hurt, that they had or are getting support right after or pretty close to immediately after the danger happened. If they're coming in for a session, we could say that we could hope that they're coming in as soon after the event as is feasible. As soon after the event as coming in after the event is not its own extra stressor. You know, it's like, okay, I can add that in now that it makes sense or we, it's not adding a whole lot of extra stress in order to come in for the session that's supposed to help end the stress. It might be that there's a balance in there. It's going to be more stressful to come, but it might be more worth it in the end. And there's certainly a balance in there where it's not worth it to try to get the session kind of space or situation after the danger. There has to be enough space for things to settle enough for adding the new thing, like trying to get to the office to come into the equation. So it's, you know, but we could hope that they're going to come in as, as soon after as possible. We could hope that after the accident that they can take time away from their necessary responsibilities, like work and family, children, decisions, having to make decisions. Hopefully they can take time away from having to make decisions. We could hope if it's, if it's like a car accident or a physical insult or something like that, we could hope that there's doctors involved who are understanding and helpful, you know, not... Won't get into how it goes goes south here, but definitely that they're <laughs> that they're that they're that they're going to help <laughs> because there's a whole lot of doctoring after accidents that you know there's a lot of people waiting in in spaces that give them the feeling that the danger is is mounting rather than oh, I was in this accident and that's over and now I'm in this safe place where I can feel this different kind of signal saying the danger is not going to continue. You know, maybe the impact of what happened from the accident is going to continue, but the danger itself or the continuing environment of signaling danger isn't going to continue that signal. And, you know, we could hope that the people get to that different signal just about as fast as possible. Maybe that's what a whole lot of these come down to. And then um, 
It's a little bit of a cheat, but you could hope if you're going to meet with somebody after they've been in the accident and in an accident, and we'll just kind of leave it as a broad category. Maybe you could say probably almost all of this just applies to being attacked as well, more or less in the broad sense of what I'm doing in this episode. But it's a lot easier to talk about accidents as compared to being attacked or having been attacked. But it's a similar kind of thing. Like, you hope a person gets to a safe enough place as soon afterwards as possible. You hope that they get the best kind of support available to them as soon after as possible. And this one is a little bit of a cheat. It's not a cheat, but it it's like a truth, but it's part of our problem here. But let's name it. It makes a big difference if they have some notion of the stress response and or they've gone through activation, deactivation processes before and it was okay. And they kind of more or less either because they consciously know about the process, they've read Peter's books or they had some conversations with you or whatever, they're able to know, oh, this trembling and shaking that's happening now, that's just part of the process. Maybe that's a a kind of awareness that they've got consciously from some literature or conversation or probably not from having seen anybody do it yet because there are millions of accidents happening around the world and nobody knows, not maybe not nobody knows, but it's rare for us to see people given the space and time to traverse the response to the accident in a kind of psychobiologically permissive way. It often gets curtailed in just so many different ways and so often that it's almost an anthema to imagine somebody sitting there allowing themselves to tremble and shake after they've been shooken up by something that they didn't expect. It's quite remarkable how we don't do it. And it's something we could hope for, that people would have some, you know, the person that we're going to talk about here, this imaginary friend, colleague, distant, hey, can you help out? Yeah, I can help out. And we could hope that they had some awareness of the process. Or their body had a predisposition for going through arousal, activation, deactivation in kind of the stereotypical pattern that we would hope for of like, oh man, bad things happen. Oh, wow, I get excitable. Oh, wow, I get back to safety. Oh, wow, I calm back down again. Like that's a pattern that's been going on on this planet for millions and millions of years. And while it's easy to see a lot of us with disturbance of that pattern or not being able to get the environmental conditions that would give us the opportunity to execute exercise, be involved in that pattern. There are still like every expectation that although nobody wants to get hurt and everything, um, we could still assume that the nervous system knows how to do that pattern. And a lot of people might have that. You might really enjoy getting to hang out with somebody who's never been informed about the process, but they'll say things like, oh yeah, I just got really hot and sweaty. And then I, so I took off my shirt and, and then, um, you know, it felt really uncomfortable, but then like it calmed down and I just kind of like, just let it happen. Be lots of people who 
say things like that just because it hasn't necessarily, maybe not just because, but we could say, we could assume that it hasn't been super negative for them in the past, but more maybe perhaps successful at noticing their own physiology change. Now, on the other hand, what often happens is that people are hurt or they're physically shooken up or their autonomic nervous system response is kind of going off to where they're confused, maybe at the site of an accident. If you are either hurt or confused or maybe even just confused, you might end up getting extra care from any first responders that are there, including immobilization like being tied down to the gurney on the way to the hospital. And while there's a huge huge spectrum to being hurt, and we could meet people anywhere along this in terms of helping them after an accident, the ideal is that people aren't hurt. And what often happens, of course, is that people are hurt. We want to name that both that can lead to this whole other sequence in terms of the reaction of first responders... And it means something to be hurt. It does something more to you if you've been through an accident and you walked away from the accident and, uh, you know, it's like, wow, that really shook me up. But gosh, good thing I wasn't hurt. Oh, I got a little nick right here, but I think that was when I got out of my car. You know, um, that's totally different than I went through this accident and I got hurt. Some some violation of my body happened. I can't move this thing anymore. Oh, this this part of me is is showing blood. It's like there there are all these different levels in there where it impacts things more. And so here we are naming out like what goes wrong or not go, what goes wrong, but like what often happens. You know, what often happens is the person actually gets hurt. And what, you know, what also also often happens is that they're not anywhere near their support system. You know, there's some ideal that we would be with our support system, but, you know, you could be, you could be in an accident with your support system so that both of you are shooken up at the same time. It could be that you're away from home, you're nowhere near home and you're in an accident. You could be actually like out of town. That's one option. Um, that there's far more likely opportunities for most people probably to be in an accident away from their primary support system than to be close to their primary support system. And in the sense of ideal, your support system's there to give you the right kind of support. You know, in the sense of it doesn't go toward the ideal, there's no support or the support system wasn't involved or doesn't appreciate the pain, doesn't appreciate the problem, doesn't appreciate that this was a big deal, could be a small accident that has a big felt sense impact that the support system back home, if there is one even, doesn't know how to appreciate the response to that. Even if it's a big event, maybe people don't often get the right kind of support. It's just too often true, really. Okay, so before we said, ideally, if we're going to meet somebody for a session, we're going to see them as quickly as possible. The truth is, most of the time they don't come in. Most of the sessions that you'll work with with people in responding to an accident will actually be with your own clients. 
that are, you're seeing on a regular basis and renegotiating an accident is some part of the process of your therapy together. And now you're talking about an accident that happened two years ago, five years ago, or when they were a child or some such like that. They didn't go see an SE practitioner right after that accident. That's why you're working it through the session now. Well, that's the, that's the case for the vast majority of people going through accidents, whether we know them or not. Most people don't go get an SE session after an accident. That, that's not any kind of norm. And so the truth is we could hope that people come in and see us as soon as possible and as soon as it's not an extra stressor after an accident. And the truth of the matter is most of the time that won't happen. If we do finally see somebody after an accident, it might be two weeks, three weeks, two months. The accident happened six months ago and it's been consuming their lives since then. They've been to 16 different doctors and, and they, they had this adjustment done and that adjustment done and this kind of thing kind of started to help and then it, it didn't help. And at that point, you have completely different things that you're going to have to attend to. New things have come in simply because you didn't get to see them sooner. So ideal, they're going to come in right away. Truth, we're going to be relating to the fact that they we're finally seeing them at some point along the way and that there might be other things inside of that, including harm done by other folks that were, you know, maybe good hearted and good intentioned and actually maybe able to help people in other circumstances. But the stress response affords very particular signals that have been misinterpreted for a very long time by our helping professions. It's easy to try to tell people to calm down when their physicality is actually trying to process activation cycles that if you try to, quote, calm them down, you actually inhibit their completion, thus necessitating or kind of reinforcing their repetition in order that they should try to have the opportunity to complete again. And it's very easy to disrupt all of that, not knowing it. And under the guise of being the helpful one or the one that you've gone to get help from, those instructions can actually help the nervous system to hold on to the stress response longer. And you and I meeting with somebody who hasn't come to see us, you know, as early on in the sequence, this is something that we'll need to take into account. Another thing that happens too often is that people start distrusting the body experience after the accident. You know, they, they get shook up and it feels really off. And if that offness doesn't go away pretty quickly, you can understandably get turned away from wanting to feel the sensation, the experience. The, it, could, it could be full, fully blown up with images of the accident. And if you let your attention go, you remember the startle. Or if something startles you, you jump and you, you know, feel how it was just like when you heard the sound. All of these things can happen that make it very easy to mistrust the body experience and that ideal of, oh, I'm able to let my body feel its odd self and settle through and that that actually would happen 
for some people, for some people, it could get very confused, right? If that latent dysregulation is already there or whatnot, there's other reasons too. It'd be very, you could see trusting the body experience just leads to more chaos, more discordance and more discomfort. What often happens is that people mistrust their body experience rather than, quote, trust the process, which even then, as we know, has some caveats on whether or not we should trust the process. And so right there, when you're meeting with somebody after the accident, there's a whole consideration. Hmm, am I going to ask them to trust their body? Am I going to just like tell them that this is okay, let that happen? Probably depends upon how reactive to it all they are. There's probably lots of ways for you to be able to determine how much do you have to support and how do you respond to that. Just like, you know, how trusting or mistrusting are they of new help, et cetera, et cetera. It's something to consider. Wow, I could understand. They would start mistrusting their body experience. Their body experience at this point was only reinforcing pain. How am I going to help the body experience process some of this active stress response so that it can find its own signal of quieting, that becomes a little bit of an issue in here sometimes. Now, as far as it goes, probably one of the more challenging situations, but at the same time, one of the more hopeful is that a person goes through an accident, fall, some kind of startle thing like this, what we're talking about, and it triggers off that complement of dysregulation that we were talking about with the Robert Scare literature from Body Bears the Burden. An accident that starts to trigger off a person's entire complex of kind of, um, you know, there, there could just be a lot of stuff that is stirred up. It could just be, it could be really, really stirred up everything can get topsy-turvy from structure, life structure and family structure and child rearing and just everything can be kind of topsy-turvy. And there can be this very clear, but very hard to get at stress response driving a whole lot of that. When you have an eye for traumatology and like these kind of things that you're, we're all picking up in this, in this work, you can kind of see like, oh my goodness, if we could attend to the accident, we could quiet the whole system and all of these other concerns that have so much charge and energy behind them, which may actually, many of them in some circumstances could be very accurate. They're threatening circumstances or situations or problems that need to be changed and they perhaps desperately need attention, but being able to respond to those challenges would be more effective and efficacious and even the opportunity to make more accurate decisions, more appropriate decisions would come if we could quiet the stress response that is related specifically to this accident, but which is now getting mixed up inside of all of the other confusion of the family setting or personal organization or what have you. 
that can be a very fast vortex moving very, very quickly and really impacts what you and I might do inside of this situation where it's like, wow, you know, you were just in an accident. I was trained in these skills to help people come out of the feeling of having been stuck or overly influenced by one of these kinds of accidents. I was more or less trained to do that for people who had that happen in the past and their life is, you know, depending on who you are and where you're working and such, more or less organized now in a way that puts that accident far enough in the past that it's a past tense experience. And they're at least organized enough now that they can come into my office and pay for my session or, you know, affect their billing somehow that we can move the process through to where we get to see each other on a regular basis. And now we get to quote, renegotiate that accident from some time in the past. But I happen to know, I happen to know that that accident caused a very fundamental basic biological response that we call the autonomic stress response. And that beyond you getting physically hurt to where tissue structure has been altered by intrusion into the body or breakage from inside, then probably the majority of your sense of response after the accident that something feels wrong is actually being driven by the nervous system response, by the basic biological response of the autonomic stress response, which has this sequence of trying to fight and flee with dangers as they're appreciated or to freeze when they become overwhelming. And that after the danger has passed, the biology expects and anticipates an entire sequence of events that would help it to come out of that stress response where it would no longer be calling forward those fight and flight and freeze type behaviors, which in the after the accident sense of things could be the body always feeling super charged up, the muscles feeling super tense, the head feeling super swimmy and dislocated, confusion being easy to happen, emotions being easy to happen, one more little noise being something that causes the nerves to feel as though they're ready to burn. Like there's all of these hypersensitivities that if you could look at them from the nervous system perspective, you'd see causing muscle pains and thought processes and image sequence repeating and just nerviness and disquietude in general, barring intrusion or bruising or breakage of the body internally. It's like we now see this as a lot of lingering response and you know all that. You know all that and you're gonna meet this person who is somewhere you know, somewhere along some kind of continuum between all those ideals, they had the right kind of support, they could let their body move through that process, their body didn't get super caught up in that process, the The thing wasn't the super worst as it could be, they had the better support that you could find after such a thing, and on down some kind of spectrum that just includes getting really hurt, having really crappy support, getting super scared of what your body feels like, not being able to get away from all of the 
challenges of work and finance and and whatnot after the danger and having all of the continued stressors continue after that car accident, after that whatever bad thing that happened, having not enough time to get away from other things saying there's another danger coming, all the way down to just getting completely tweaked and confused by internal somatic signals because perhaps most likely all of the work on this so far would suggest because of disorganization that was there already and that was even perhaps really being held in check and even had found a way to negotiate itself in this world successfully. But now with this extra feeling internalized as something being wrong, now setting off this whole other chain reaction where like all of the signal of fight, flight, freeze from past insults and hurts and all of the confusion of the nervous system on what to do becomes so noisy that it becomes, well, for some people, truly difficult to figure out what to do next. And here we go. You and I, informed, helpful, you know, like, okay, sure. We'll, let's, let me offer or, oh, it's a request. Okay, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll meet up. And, and you got to see when you go into that, it takes a little bit of thinking through. It takes thinking about. And so from here, what I will do is I will share with you what I do, how I think, how I approach these moments when I'm meeting somebody after a recent accident. I'll do that right after a brief message from our sponsors. Do you find yourself thinking about the next time you'll be in an accident? Of course, nobody wants that to happen, but as careful as we try to be, There's always some chance that something bad is going to happen to us. That's why it's good to be prepared and also able to calm down after dangerous events. Maybe you've been hearing or reading stories about these famous psychophysiologists like Peter Levine and Stephen Porges and how after this or that accident or dental operation, they would intentionally seek social conversation with the nurses and people nearby while simultaneously monitoring their heart rate to verify that they weren't getting too excited but were in fact being successful at downregulating the pace of their heart through the use of the social engagement nervous system. If you've been hearing stories like that, you've probably been thinking to yourself, I sure wish I could remember to look around and talk to people when I'm feeling in danger. That way I could calm down and make better decisions and generally not feel like things are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. Frankly, that's a good way to be thinking because it's true. If you can engage your social engagement ventral vagal nervous system appropriately during times of stress, you can minimize the impact of that stress by calming your heart as best you can as you go along. To do that, you'll need myelin. You see, myelin is the fatty insulation layer on the outside of the nerves running between the various different anatomical structures tied together into what the polyvagal theory has named the ventral vagal complex. Pretty cool, huh? Of course, you've got some amount of myelin on these nerves already. Otherwise, you'd be bouncing off the walls. But who can't use more? You probably could get the The myelinator. Now available www.liberationispossible.org backslash myelinator. That's M-Y-E-L-I-N-A-T-O-R, myelinator. 
The Myelinator is unaffiliated with Peter Levine or Stephen Porges. Their public stories are referenced only as examples. Totally rebranded, trademark, copyrighted, age-old technology. The Myelinator. Patent pending. Well, those Myelinator people are relentless. Before I continue here, let me mention a podcast point for you as a listener. As you review these longer episodes of mine, maybe even shorter ones, who knows, you'd be like, oh, this is too slow for me. I want this to be done. I don't know if you've already figured this out, but on probably all of the devices that you're listening to this recording on, there's probably a way to speed it up. 1.25, one and a half times, two times faster, the recording, so that my voice will sound like a chipmunk and just go faster and faster and faster. And that might be helpful because... This episode is nowhere near over. It's simply going to take the time it takes. Maybe some other day, I or someone else is going to have a 10-point plan that everybody can grok in 10 minutes. I'm not even pursuing that idea, so I don't know if that's possible. This is how I'm going to share it with you, what I have to share. Here's a look at my pattern of how I think and proceed when I'm meeting with someone who's recently been through an accident. Recently being a relative word for me here that describes like the feeling of the response or the impact of the accident is still actively happening. And that's compared to, it still bothers me, but it's not like it happened yesterday. Or even like, I don't even think about it, but um, maybe it's an issue if you if you kind of think it is. You know, um, there's... Distance, relative distance, and what I'm talking about here is close by. As I said before, though, a lot of this would apply just exactly how I would go about helping folks in classic sessions who had past accidents, and we were going to try to elicit that by, usually by telling the story. Elicit, you know, incomplete self-protective responses and other associated somatic signals, etc., etc. So here... When the accident is recent, you don't have to solicit much, right? The symptoms and the impulses, they're right at the surface of things. So there's, there's this other way of thinking as I go into these. Here we go. I want to tell you, my first stance, I've been thinking about this, is like, what, what's the first thing that's going on in myself as I'm entering into something like this? I'm going to a house call somebody's coming to my office and I know that they don't really do therapy. They're not my client. Maybe they're my friend, you know, any of this that we've been talking about. And the first thing I'm at, I am is apprehensive. I'll tell you the truth. I am apprehensive. I'm kind of like inside myself. I've got that slow motion ninja riot sense going on where it's like, there's a whole lot of violence that I'm kind of containing and mustering and, and managing and kind of, I'm apprehensive. And it's not because I think anything is going to go wrong per se. In fact, I think we're probably better off seeing people than if we don't see, or if they don't see anyone. You know, I when I enter into these things, I kind of generally have a certain kind of confidence and pride of place that I, I could definitely not help much 
but I'm more likely to help than, than not. I've seen that. And it's not because of anything special about me. It's because there is a natural biological sequence that people have done the heavy lifting. Peter Levine, Stephen Porges, all the different folks that have kind of come forward and added to it. And then my particular mentorship through Stephen Hoskinson has just like really helped me to see, oh, this is this is like a thing that's wants the right kind of support. If it gets that, it's gravity. That's a kind of gravity. It's not gravity as gravity, but it is a biological sequence that has a process that we could pretend is like gravity. Things that go up want to come back down. And at the same time, I'm apprehensive because this is, this is a dicey situation. There's a lot at stake. There's a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of room to make a comment or direction early that ruins things for later or challenges things for later. It's way easy to enter into these kind of situations where a person is more on edge and more, uh, you know, they're kind of caught inside of the stress response. It's easy to want to enter into that and be super helpful or, or something, you know, or think you got like a routine, you're going to just fix this or, or to be too timid or whatever. I mean, it's just easy to go into this and for things to go wrong. And, and while the potential for something here is really super good, I, I kind of just go ahead and hold on to that apprehension as I move into this. And I, I look for answers to a bunch of questions pretty early on that are kind of there. I, I guess I think of them as being fed by my apprehension and I'm trying to answer them so that I can kind of put my apprehension down. So I kind of feel like this worry that I have when I encounter these situations is a really positive limiting force on me. It says, figure it out before you screw this up, something like that. And so I, I try to get through a few things pretty quickly. I need to make sure that I'm not intruding or that I'm not a burden like that my presence isn't in some way just another new stressor. If this is all done by invitation and such, this it's not like a problem. But if if this is like the family brought me in or a friend brought me in or this is an unexpected kind of thing or even somebody like decided they wanted to try this but it turns out they're kind of freaked out even by paying attention to themselves because their body experience is just has them freaking out, tweaking out a little bit on anything that calls their attention to it. I have to make sure that my presence isn't going to make things worse somehow. If I don't figure that out right away or pretty quick, I can ruin things for later by pretending like I'm just because I'm there for the right reason or somebody brought me in or even they invited me, et cetera, et cetera. Just washing over this can make it so that things get more and more agitated. And we don't want that. We want to get the signal, hey, yeah, we're cool. Let's 
let's say that it's okay for us to be in here and and that we want to do this together. So I, I I look for that, and I try to get a notion of how things have been going since the accident. Is there a trend toward improvement, or you know, from a psychobiologically informed rationale of things? Um, are things moving in the right direction? Of course, for some people, at some points along that sequence, they might very well feel like they're not moving in the right direction, like they might be feeling more pain, whereas before they might have been feeling less pain, and they might be upset by that, but we might be able to hear, oh, you know, it's like that might be a sign that things were in freeze, and now they're coming out of freeze, and that could actually be more in the right direction. When I'm trying to get this assessment of what's the trajectory been, I'm trying to ask these things without provoking the pain too much. Because early on, I'm just trying to get a window, a kind of a sign of what's the general movement here. I'm not trying to get involved in paying attention to how's the pain right now while you and I are hanging out. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to invoke too much of it. But I am asking about questions like, how's it been? And, and, you know, it's like, does it seem like things are how they're trending this way or that? I'm listening for whatever has already been said to me, of course, too. And I'm essentially trying to get a feel and some, some feedback for the question, since the accident, how's it going? Are things more settled since then? Are they stirred? Are they shaken? Are they freaking? Are they flipping out? You know, it's like, how's it been? You know, it's kind of like, yeah, what's the trend? And by some, you know, a couple minutes into this and hanging out and paying attention and stuff, I'm probably getting some sense of both how long ago the accident was and how active the stress response still is in relationship to it. I'm also probably starting to see if there's some symptom complex coming up after the accident or if it's even unraveling latent dysregulation that's been stirred up, you know, and and that's coming just in initial encounter, just how's this person doing? What's their quality of contact? How easy it is it for us to make contact? How... What's the back and forth between us? All of those kind of questions are answering, you know, something about how big a deal is this and how nuanced and careful do we have to be? Are we going to get to just say, yep, you got hit. We're going to have to go through the probably disquieting and uncomfortable experience of letting your body feel the odd sensations and experience and response to that. But we're going to like figure out how to just really let that happen or no, 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 no. We are not going to try to do that all at once. We are not going to try to just let things hang out. We are going to manage this and kind of get some stabilization and control over things to make sure that we're not just unleashing, you know, more and more pain or more and more sense of chaos. We're, we're really looking inside of this initial context, at least I am here, to once again make sure 
I don't screw it up for later. All of this initial contact is going to tell me some kind of sense of how much I can help now or later and whether or not I can really help at all. You know, this, it, there's a place in here where before I've really come in to do anything, I'm trying to figure out, should I even be trying to help here? Am I a burden? Okay, I'm not a burden. What's the process going like? Okay, how's the contact? How much can I ask about this? Like, what? what is all, am I going to be able to get some traction here? And, and I'm, I'm trying to decide. All because I've shown up doesn't mean I'm then going to, quote, do S-E. I don't, I don't know that yet. <laughs> you know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm, I'm already doing it. I'm trying to be a safety signal. I have no idea what time I am in here. Two minutes, ten minutes, but sometime along, okay, we, we're, in, we're in the same room and I, I should be here and, and like we've got a relationship to make this work out. I've got some sense of how intense this is. I'll probably get a far out, way out overview, 10,000 mile, you know, distant view flight over what went down. I might have already picked that up or I might ask something similar to, um, you know, maybe, maybe there's more details to go over later, but for now, can I, can I ask you to tell me a very basic outline of what happened? That might be a, an invitation that I make. And I'm listening for things like how much orientation was there, in other words, like how much anticipation of the danger was there before it happened. I'm listening for like how out of control it became during and afterwards, how in control or out of control of the situation they felt or seemed to have been. I'm looking for how big the consequences were in the immediate sense. And then the days after how much success in their response to the sense of danger there was. I'm looking for the signs you know, of the autonomic stress response, they seem to be diminishing, they seem to be continuing, how they've been moving through afterwards, if they've been feeling more agitated, poor sleep, increased startle, maybe like intrusive images, like they're remembering what happened or feeling like easily tearful or more easily or readily agitated somehow stunned and silent, tired or exhausted, all of that kind of thing. And sometimes be like asking menus, but more or less just trying to get this overview of the storyline to see what's the kind of outline, what's the shape of this. Once I've got some sense of what happened and maybe an imagination of how much still needs to happen, how triggered this person is. You know, you talk to one person, they went through an accident and they tell you the whole story and it's like really no big deal. I mean, it is, you know, and there'd be like something else to do here later on, but it's no big deal. And you talk to somebody else and you, you just the fact that you walked in the room and that you're there because they were in an accident causes them to start crying 
in a way that feels in that moment to them, like completely out of their control. And it's like just one more wave after a whole other bunch of waves that they've had since this event happened. And these are, these are two ends of a spectrum or two kind of places along a large, wide spectrum. And so in this early period, we're trying to get the overview. It's kind of like, how big a deal is this? And as I'm getting that, I'm starting to ask another question that goes something like, what's in the way? What does this person's situation need for this stress response process to move through and start to settle on its own? Like, what does this person need? What is this situation that this person is in? What needs to happen here so that that kind of sense of gravity of kind of like, whoa, the accident happened and now I can come out of the response to the accident. What, what needs to happen for that to take place? Do they need space from a family? Do they need to know more information from their doctor or their MRIs that they don't have brain damage or something like that? Do they need to have kind of more confident direction of their attention in a pendulated fashion that will help them notice something that's other than the pain or danger signal that they've been paying attention to because it's been calling all their attention. And if they get enough solid support and guidance through all of those kind of, okay, you notice that and what else do you notice kind of moments, maybe that would help to complete the ongoing stress response or help it move through rather than get caught up in the signal that like, oh God, I don't like that. And then try to do something to stop the feeling because I don't like it so much. It's like this next question that I hold. What's in the way of this completing? Sometimes, of course, it's too many things to be able to realize any way to actually be of help, you know, to to say like, oh my gosh, the family scene and the money scene and the work scene or the insurance or the previous stressor scene or the limited contact or limited session or there's places in here where it could be like, oh, what's in the way is insurmountable or what's in the way is really going to take a lot of time or a lot of meetings or a lot of pain. Like there is no guarantee whatsoever that because we have some skills and because we understand a process like this, that we then encounter a context in a situation where we actually can really truly make the difference. It just isn't guaranteed. And so it's kind of a a question along this thing, like what needs to happen for this to complete, to move through, you know, and it's um, sometimes, yeah, sometimes it's good to remember Ram Das, keep your heart open in hell or Winston Churchill for that matter, when you're going through hell to keep going in these situations where it gets really hard to see how anything is going to change for this person, or you can see that it's going to take a lot of really sophisticated titrations over time to help them redirect their attention or whatever. There's a lot of different stuff in here. It's when you get in that zone, it's like, whoa, just stay human. Uh, stay in the session, too. And and remember the formula, episode 43, like, pace the reds and kind of 
just get a little inquisitive about the blue, keep things moving forward. Okay, so there's what's keeping this from moving through. What are, what are we going to have to do here? How big it, because of how big a deal this is and how much it's trending toward getting stuck or moving through. And then I I kind of go into this place where I start to think that I can answer a kind of a question. It's like, do we need to put the brake on and support stabilizing all of this? Is is it all so dicey that we need to really come in and put a whole lot of stabilization effort into this so that we don't, you know, have things just get super uncomfortable and get us me associated with this person feeling more uncomfortable. They were already feeling uncomfortable. And here we went in and didn't do enough stabilization. Things start to feel super uncomfortable. There's no sign and there's no proof that we're going to feel better at the end of this. And it it just kind of starts to go south. And as soon as it starts to go south, it races south. And well, you know, maybe it's just better to figure out, oh, this person's going to need a whole lot more time stabilizing. So there's a question. It's like, do we spend more time stabilizing or spend time stabilizing? Haven't really talked about that yet, but, but sure enough, do we support stabilizing or do I try to help move things forward just by supporting attention to allow the pendulation or the signs of the autonomic stress response that are already present that have the sense of already wanting to move. And if the person is sufficiently supported, maybe we can just kind of enter into allowing that sense of shaking or trembling or some kind of thing like that could be a lot of things allow us to wonder if we allow it to happen, will it continue or will it change in some way? Anticipating, of course, that not that it, not that without caveat here, that it could could be confused for some folks, but for sure we have this anticipation that if it's allowed, if it's not inhibited, if it's not too confused, it will kind of do something. I mean, you know what that what that looks like. So the the other option is if it's all stable and there's not anything just ready to go off right now, we might rerun the story in order to catch anything that seems to cause activation or reactivation under the context of where you're meeting somebody and they're pretty they're pretty much okay. They they don't feel too shooken up and they don't feel like anything's waiting to happen or really distressing their attention, but they know they went through this accident and they, they maybe want to see you, should see you, then it's perfectly reasonable to run through the story. Well, you know, what, what happened in order to elicit some of those um, maybe points along the way that call forward the activation, state-dependent memory, that kind of jazz. So that's the question I'm working my way toward. Do I work on stabilizing? Do we work on just kind of allowing things to move through? Do we work on rerunning the narrative, the storyline of what happened? Maybe there are other options, but those are those seem complete for me. <laughs> you know, works for me. Maybe maybe just hanging out. That's that, I'd put that instead of stabilizing. You know, but you realize, oh wow, we don't want to do do anything. I'd I'd call that stabilizing. So. 
for stabilizing, uh, it's important to make sure that my presence is okay. Like I was saying before, it's like, if, uh, if I'm going to come in here and start to try to change the activation feeling state and everything, I need to make sure that this person can handle that help, you know? So I, I, I ask, you know, is it going to be okay if I kind of run us through some things to try to see if, if I might be able to help, you know, I try to use that language over time and, and no guarantees here, no promise, because if it doesn't work right away based on a promise, let me do something that's meant to help. Ooh, what if it doesn't help right away? It might, it might kind of ice the option for trying something else a few minutes later, especially if it's really uncomfortable. So, okay, got to make sure my presence is okay. And then that my questions or directions are okay. If this is a new relationship or a dual relationship, that that can require stuff. It's like on establishing a new relationship, I might need to explain who I am as a therapist in the world. I used to explain that I was studying some new science and therapy that was proving really important about how humans go through stressful events. I used to kind of give that little, and I could, and I could share some of those ideas with you here and maybe even try to um, share some of those techniques with you to see if, if that might be more helpful for you for what happened recently. So I might like lean on the science. I might lean on my profession nowadays. If it's a real young person, I'm probably going to say something like, you know, I'm someone who helps people feel better after scary stuff happens. How's that sound? Would it be okay if we hang out a little bit? I'm, I'm still going to get permission. I'm going to establish some kind of reason for me to be asking questions in a few minutes. And for dual relationship kind of situations, I find it incredibly important to take the time to clarify that for the next bit of time, like during this session or during these sessions, as it might be, that I'm going to be sharing myself in the way that I do when I work. And that could be very different than how we do as friends or whatever we've met before. So I I usually say, you know, in here, I'm probably going to put on a different hat and I might ask you different kinds of questions or speak to you differently than at other times. And it's just in favor of me being able to, you know, do my work in order to help you as best as I can with this situation. So I, I just try to make it clear that I anticipate doing things differently and I kind of call in my authority. Um, actually, I do that because I want to be able to lean on that later when, uh, if, if things get a little dicey or difficult or stressful or I need to be able to direct attention, I want to have already said, inside of here, I'm not your friend, I might interrupt you. <laughs> that's, that's kind of what I'm after there. And I take the time to do that. Now, one of the biggest things that I'm doing in all of this is to make sure that I don't become associated with distress by asking them to feel themselves in an SE kind of way and have them linger in it without experiencing it as becoming a beneficial thing to do. So I don't ask people to just go in and feel themselves a whole lot before I do quite a bit of setup. I'm not in any kind of race to, quote, do SE you know, and um, so with that, if I can see that 
feeling something is going to be a positive or lead to a positive result eventually, that's one thing. But if I can expect that most of what we're going to feel is pain and discomfort in their felt sense experience, then my first task is to give them relief from that felt experience by helping them hold their attention outside of themselves for a longer period of time. That's to help them pay attention to other things or just to have the relief from the fact that they've not spent some more time consistently feeling the discomfort which has had their attention since the accident. So sometimes in here, it's just a matter of giving them a whole lot of something else to pay attention to. And while that can't be done too quickly and that can't be done too kind of like excitedly, you might need to match their pace. It can be a real thing here that the goal is not to process anything, but it's in fact to get the attention more outward. For stabilizing here, there's no doubt I do pretty much a consistent modified three by three orientation kind of thing that simulated pendulation pattern I described in episode 94, where I bring the attention out and then in and then back out again. Typically, I'm structuring that in a silly little pattern. I I say something like, I'll tell you three things that I can see if you'll tell me three things you can see. This is essentially an overly structured half sandwich or veggie sandwich from Stephen Hoskinson's kind of style of doing things. I was taught that as simulated pendulation and long time ago just kind of said, oh, you know, like we could make it really super structured, not because I think super structured things are great, but because sometimes it's a perfect way to start out and then move off from it. So a lot of times I I start with something like that. It's critically helpful in moments like this. It's like doing this three by three pattern gives an easy structure for proceeding and gives people something easy to remember what to do when you're not there anymore. And that pattern, right, is just like to notice three things that we kind of see outside of ourselves, three things that we notice inside of ourselves and three things outside of ourselves. And the more distressing inside is, the longer we're spending on the outside. And if it's super distressing inside, we might not even be naming three things, just like one thing or a passing glance. And the idea is to just kind of stimulate that that transfer from orientation to inner experience back to orientation. It's a priming of the ventral vagal complex too. So super helpful in applying the vagal break in a stabilization scenario like this. This three by three process after the accident also follows the same logic as in episode 93 for lingering or moving on. Generally in these situations, I begin with a phenomenal amount of attention outward with only a very brief passing glance of attention inward. I don't really worry if it's unpleasant or not. I'm, I'm not staying long enough to care. So I'm just like, yeah, what do you notice? And you notice that, and then we're moving back out again. And over time, I linger in orientation longer. Over time, I linger at any points where things seem to be going a little bit more in the right direction. It's easier to notice something inside or the thing be- like named is more pleasant. That would definitely be a time to give it a little bit more attention, trying to stabilize that blue vortex as it were. But at the, the primary thing for me is just like out in, out, and then to linger in places that kind of encourage it to go a little bit more in the right direction. That could include just lingering in the chatty chatty if it gets easier for us to be doing the chatty chatty or looking around. The big thing there is that I'm holding back 
<laughs> there's a kind of like, oh, I need to hold this back. There's a holding back of my enthusiasm to keep going. If I'm doing this stabilization thing, I am taking a long time to do this, even longer than I really want to. And I, I just kind of linger in there until I'm pretty convinced that the person I'm with can recognize that it's possible for us to calm things down should they get going again, even if that's happening in rounds, even if every once in a while we just kind of let the attention go again and the activation comes back up, that we can notice it coming up and as it's coming up, like take the turn to reorient again. It's huge. Once they can see that that's possible, I'm like, okay, yeah, we're, we're going to be able to kind of move on with this. Once I'm pretty convinced that this person can recognize that it's possible for us to calm things down should they get going again, then it there's another choice point, and that's whether or not we're going to just try to let things go, or if we're going to try to settle things out and put a pause, a break, some space in all of this. If they're likely to have a hard time with the sense of things coming back up again, if we start to linger and the sense of, oh gosh, this feels really uncomfortable, if it starts to come up right away, I'm probably going to take the very first signs of activation and just take those as exits, right? Where I'd be like, right, and we'll just notice it that much. And then I'll, I'll, I'll just do that thing for us again. I'll, I'll just have us pull our attention back out, right? Like, I'll just tell you a few things I can see. You tell me a few things you can see. Like, I can see the doorway over there and, and so on. Of course, you'd need to cut back this phrase. If you do it over and over again, it can feel super harsh and pedantic if you don't kind of find a way to help people know what you mean when you say, oh, we'll do that thing again. And so the next time you say it, it's like, oh, right, one more time. And again, uh-huh, okay, it, it still comes up like that. We'll just, uh, we'll just back on out again, taking another look around. The goal with this out-in-out pattern, of course, is to give more influence to the ventral vagal break. And over time, have it give more influence to the runaway feeling that sense that something is out of control and is, and is going to run away with us. As that starts to adjust itself, then we should be able to get to a place where we can either stabilize for not having to keep feeling running away going, and we can take some space from that, or we can start to linger into it and and see what's going to come. If it took a lot to get to that stabilized sense of things on the first meeting, then I'm probably hoping that I can meet this person again because doing a lot to affect settling probably says we'd be taking on way too much if we then tried to complete the stress response signals and have them truly move through. If we've had to do a whole lot of three by three to stabilize things, it's just good that we've done that so that they can go home and do that as homework or kind of a thing to do while passing time, trying to go on with a whole lot more process right now after having had to do a lot to stabilize things. That's like a, a choice point of like, nope, that's, that's plenty. Of course, if there won't be a next time, then it might be worth trying to get through the quote discharge phase. If, 
if it's possible, if it's necessary, because this is the one chance. But truth be told, I, I try to avoid those heroics <laughs> these days because they can really go sideways and they can be exhausting for people who have the kind of charge that would make them desirable. There, There's often background dysregulation going on that if you if you try to get into the magic session and try to get through all of this all at once, if it took a whole lot just to get the stabilization process to take place, then trying to push through the rest of it is, um, I think that's just uh, asking for trouble. But if this is the one and only chance I'm going to have to meet with somebody and it feels like we're better off trying it than not, even if it's taken a bit of stabilization, if this is the one meeting, then I, I sometimes um, go for it and and haven't really ever had it um, do harm as far as I'm aware. <laughs> uh, but I know that it's been it's been uncomfortable. I know that it's been really, really uncomfortable at times. And that's a that's a place, right, to keep your heart open in hell and and keep going. In this case, keep things moving forward in the most pendulated way that you can. Now, if if we do decide to pause and we have the opportunity to meet again, or even if I'm only meeting this with person one time, we might go over some of this. Like, I'll usually lean into typical stressless ideas, things like saying, you know, this is an inherently stressful kind of thing that you've been through. Like, you just got hurt. You just got really shooken up. You just got really bumped, and and that that really does stuff to us, and it it affects us, and it. It deserves the credit of what this is. And so if we can minimize other challenges that you're going through right now to kind of have the stress of this be less, as less as possible so that you can kind of let just the recuperation and the, the kind of the, the, this moment happen and pass through without having to make other big decisions or whatnot, then that would be good. So I say things like that to try to help people be clear. Like it's not something you just, you don't walk away from an accident as though it didn't happen until the, the, the pattern and process and, and all the feeling states and the twists and turns, particularly of the somatic reaction kind of stuff, all of that needs to get um, digested as they say. Otherwise, you you really could go on and and have other screwy things happen. So I try to get it across to people like this would be a time to take the easiest path through things. I don't say how long the process is going to last. I don't say what else is going to happen. I probably don't predict anything about felt experience except if I can tell that pain or trembling or shaking are on their way or are starting to show themselves and are going to continue, I probably give some warning to that so that it's not out of the blue and unexpected and disquieting for that. But I give some kind of warning in that way. But I try not to be too predictive about that or to be too suggestive. If it's if it's not clear that it's coming... Um, maybe, maybe I, I don't lean, maybe, maybe, maybe if it's, if we're really talking about the process, I do say something no matter what, but 
I, I don't get predictive. Like, this is what's going to happen to you. It's, I don't find that. Yeah, I don't do that. I, but I most certainly do suggest that we take the easiest way through things and that we do what we can to reasonably postpone other challenges for later on. Things like that. If I decide to continue, I'm probably simply going to do some open attention investigation with the general intent of trying to see what already wants to happen. Now that we can stabilize things and can risk things getting less stable because we know we can get back to feeling more stable, more settled, more space and distance from the sense of uh, charge that comes up after these events. Once that's there, I sometimes name that, okay, now that we can do that, can I ask, can I ask us to try something else, which would be this funny thing of just being curious, how are things feeling right now in terms of the things that you've been noticing, how are they all doing right now? You know, the jangliness that you've been noticing, like, can I ask after we've been hanging out here, is that jangliness, is that the same now or is that more, is it less? How is it now compared to before we were hanging out? Now you'll notice that's a pretty direct question right into the symptoms of things. And in, in truth, I'm not too interested in looking at the symptoms. I'm looking for evidence of what's going on and how much kind of sense there is of things that might want to happen or that are already changing or that are already showing some sign of difference. From inside of that, it's going to tell me a whole lot about where I need to put our attention in order to help things move through. So I, I go pretty direct into, okay, well, we have this thing and it's really obvious. Let's see if there's evidence of some discharge kind of stuff like trembling or shaking or heat waves or buzzing or pulsing or that kind of thing, all suggesting that it it's already ready to happen and we just need to give some permission for it to be allowed to happen. Now, if I do that, I, I don't do it without some due diligence of making sure that they're pendulating, things are changing over time, that their attention will allow the things to change and that they'll watch that change not simply try to avoid it or get distracted, you know, try to space out from it, but that they'll be able to attend to it before I just say, oh, right, you notice some discharge stuff, let that happen. Like I'll, I'll settle into making sure that it's cool to allow it to happen. But if it's a signal that when we first go into this question of like, okay, well, let's just see what wants to happen. How are things going? What are you noticing now? How's it going compared to before? The thing that had your attention, what's it doing now? All of that. If it shows signs toward discharge, I'm probably going to take that before anything else. Why, why not? You know, it's kind of like the signal, the sign that, oh, this is, this is kind of trying to be toward the end of the completion process. So if it shows up, like it's time to turn and follow it, allow it to happen. So that's the first thing I'm listening for. Is there any sense of buzzing or pulsing or like, like what pulsing would be, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm in my mind way of thinking, it's like one step back into pendulation happening, but one step forward, like buzzing, trembling, shaking, twitching, 
Yeah. Now, if there isn't, there's maybe like, this is like just a kind of a way of saying to myself, oh, these are the things that are most attractive to me. So next most attractive in this scenario is the things that indicate clear implicit movements like rocking and bouncing or self-soothing and head wobbling. You know, if they, if they just kind of tune into what do you notice now? How are things going now? And you see them start to bounce in their seat or you see their head start to bobble, you know, it, that's, that's a, in, in this scenario, it's an indication of something that probably is just waiting to be allowed to happen. And it's probably going to move through as long as it doesn't get confused by all the different things it can get confused by, you know, it's like, whoa, it's just going to ride right through and do all this other stuff. So the trick will be to turn the attention to allowing that to happen without disrupting it, you know? And so I, I probably say something like, you know, I wonder as, as we're sitting here, if you, if you maybe possibly feel a kind of rocking or a bouncing or something like that, if, if you notice that maybe, maybe just see if, if it would be okay to see if you can let that happen more or less, just let that happen just like it's doing itself all on its own. Now there, there might be a hundred different adjustments to that. And it's probably best that you let it happen a bit before you say anything about it so that the signal can develop, it can become something before you turn the attention to it. But sure enough, that's the request here to take the moment, to take the time to allow the attention to not have to be directed, thus find out what is expressing itself already Stabilization's already there. We don't have to direct the attention. Now we can have a little bit more free attention. What do you notice now? Oh, there's some bobbing. We probably want to turn the attention toward allowing the bobbing to happen. Of course, bobbing like that might develop. It might sprout further self-protective responses or aggregated movements, or it might kind of trigger that discharge feeling, or simply just bobble and wobble and start to settle out over time. There's tons of different options, but if it's the real thing, you won't need to make it happen. You'll only need to continue to make it safe enough to allow it to happen. Once the attention is free, it's like, whoa, what are you noticing now? What already wants to happen is kind of the question behind how are things going now compared to before? What are you noticing in here now? Now that you know things are stabilized enough or we can get back to quieting things down if necessary. What if we just open the attention up? You've been in this accident. What still wants to happen? Now, of course, this all gets harder. <laughs> you know, it goes down to when implicit movements and discharge things, you know, how, how are those things going now? They don't return comments of, oh yeah, I feel buzzing, moving down my arms, running down my legs. Instead, it returns things like, this is painful, or I feel more distress, or the images from the accident come forward, or physical pains, or even noticing um, that the buzzing is completely constant without any sense of oscillation or change. It, it's not a sign of discharge. It's more of a sign of something really rattled or pinched or some kind of 
deep underlying neurological problem that says, oh my gosh, am I going to not be able to feel my arms forever? And when it goes in this direction, what are you noticing now? How are things going? This is a time when it's necessary for us to remain proactive in helping to guide their attention so they don't get caught by either the distress of the discomfort or the association between you and the discomfort or something like that. You want to stay inside the driver's seat of like, okay, we were doing the stabilization thing before, I took control there, now we're going inside and we're coming up across things that are not giving the sense of, oh, that's something we could just allow to happen, going to have to stay pretty involved. Now, of course, you might just think to yourself, all right, this is dangerous. I need to step back out into stabilization, doing orientation and all of that kind of stuff. But there'll be a point where you've got enough of that. And the fact of the matter is there just needs to be more support and guidance of the pendulation as you try to help things that are trying to happen. It's like pain signals trying to happen maybe or like heart racing faster, nervousness trying to happen or all kinds of different other signals. And you might just need to be there to help direct the attention from the edge of the pain to the center of the pain, back to the edge, back and forth, or directing the attention to other body parts where the pain, the discomfort isn't as uncomfortable. So it's like, you notice your heart racing fast. Can I ask you at the same time, can you notice your back and your in your lower part of your body resting in the chair or sitting in the chair and taking the attention back and forth between those two. Generally speaking, I'm always trying to be as close to the client's autonomy and as far away from my direction of where I tell them to put their attention. So I try not to tell people what else to pay attention to, but ask instead like, okay, you notice that and what else do you notice? And then I lean my response to their response in the direction that I would rather have them pay attention to. So they notice that their heart is racing fast and that they also, I'll use that example, that they're sitting in the chair. Suppose you could get that out of them. Then I would feed back those two in an order that makes me get to reinforce the part that I am more interested in. So it's like, all right, so you notice the the speed of the, you know, your chest going faster, your heart going faster. And then you also notice your body in the chair. Um, how do you mean that you notice your body in the chair? Like you notice your back or your legs or your bum or, or which, which part of your body in the chair do you, do you notice? And so with that, I'm kind of using questions to direct people's attention. And yet if it came down to it, it'd be like, okay, so you notice your chest beating really hard and really fast and We're not just going to jump out all the way into orientation, but I'll go ahead and tell you to feel your feet on the floor. Could happen. Or to squeeze my fingers is more more likely for me. I'd probably, that level of things, be closer and give something for people to do with that energy. But that's, that's just so many different options and you get your own artistic option. The thing here is that you got to stay involved. You can't just, oh, wow, now you've, gotten that stabilization and we're in the let's just feel things as they happen. Let's only allow things to happen that want to happen when they're already expressing pendulation. And when they're not, we've got to, by degree, support that pendulation to come forward. If you can get the pendulum moving in here, you might see any of those other steps come forward as described before, like the signs of 
moving toward organizing self-protective actions or the wobble-bobble or the signals of discharge, there's actually a kind of crazy thing that a lot of times, if you can get the pendulum moving soon after an accident, you'll see more or less kind of the, the most surface sense of all that self-protective response stuff that is talked about in the training, where people feel the turn or their head really turns and they they like, oh my gosh, it's like my head is turning by itself. Like all of that notion of the autonomic nervous system developing instructional patterns that are kind of designed or, or say, move like this, move like that. And those instructions are tied to the kind of the sense that the danger is actively happening and all of that kind of goes together in some kind of connection or web or what Bob Scare, right? What he called the trauma capsule or, you know, this somatic association. And sometimes when in these events, you know, that that's all, that stuff is really at the surface. And if the discharge business of quieting all of that doesn't just happen right after the accident of itself, it seems, and it might not be exactly like this, this might be just ready to, hap- ready to happen anyway, but, but there is this kind of thing that if the pendulum's been just a little bit held back, and if the completion process has been just a little bit held back, and a person finally sits down with you, and you ask these questions that help get the pendulum going again, and they start to feel and allow things to be themselves, whoa, it's weird. Because people sit there in the chair and their body will turn and shift and do things as though they were responding actively to the accident, which will then usually, you know, trigger off all the wobble-bobble discharge business. It can be quite profound. And it can also be one of the more helpful elements of the entire process of working with somebody who isn't familiar with it all, because with it being so at the surface, if you can stabilize things where they don't feel threatened by all the allowance for things to feel themselves, then it can be very compelling. People can really notice, oh, it's true. It really does feel that way. And that kind of helps set the hook for permission for, oh, well, if it really feels that way, and it seems like it's really happening, and it seems like it wants to happen, maybe it's possible we just let it happen and we'll just notice it and watch it and we'll see what happens next, as it were. Now, there's more caveats to all this. I think we'd be doing a total disservice if we brazenly run into guiding people's attention into tracking their experience and encouraging pendulation if they'd recently been in an accident and they've not done the steps we've been talking about before in terms of stabilizing the autonomic state and all of that and being able to know that that there's an exit from it and to know how how stirred up is this person and all of that, we're much better off to think ahead of time. Now, if they're running headlong into harm and you don't have any choice, that's a completely different thing. In that case, you're needing to follow along for harm reduction and perhaps to apply the formula as we've talked about before so many times and to try to continue to work on stabilization over time as best you can. If they're just racing into the activation, you might just have to turn and go with them and do the best you can. But to jump into 
oh, feel your problem, feel what you're noticing right now without having done all that stabilizing and contracting before, I think it'd be a good way to jeopardize the potential of what we have to offer here. Of course, there's a whole nother way of going about finding out what already wants to happen. And I like to use it whenever possible, though I'll admit that it's, um, how, how the, how's the problem doing after stabilization is a more typical pattern for me when I'm working with people after an accident. But just, just because I find it more congruent with that situation. But if the situation allows, I'll, I'll use that classic, if there's enough space to stabilize and to find out what wants to happen by lingering, lingering on any stabilized element that feels better, I'll do that. Like the classic stabilizing the blue vortex thing and feeling the resource state and calming everything down and lingering into, oh, just like feel how you can really let yourself calm down here. I'll do that. I do find it potentially kind of dramatic in that sense of if somebody's really been in an accident and I lean really hard on the the settled resource state, not just stabilized, not just we can get out of the who rush of it, but more like we can really deepen the the quality of relief. If it's if it's not like coming from the allowance of the process moving towards settling of its own kind of organic intelligent sense, but I'm dropping in on the blue side to quiet things down, uh, you know, you could you could see that flip as people calm down. You could see the nervous system say, wait a second, I, I, I'm actually up in this stress response. So I tend to move toward the problem once I've got stabilization going. But I'll just mention that it could be that, oh, wow, this is really quieting down. Oh, this really feels a lot better. Oh, maybe there's other stress response stuff to be processed here. Maybe it's even going to come up as we linger into the blue side of this. But I'll, I'll, I'll follow that sometimes. It's true. I wanted to mention that. Now, it's silly, but I'll just make this as an aside, even though it could be a central theme. But somewhere in here, I might very well start to use touch in the sense of trying to help people allow what's happening and what's already wanting to happen. Like, I might have used touch a little bit during stabilization, but that would have been more to help give a little bit of support to avoid threshold or overwhelm or the sense of overactivation or just really feeling too, too, too much. And I would have kind of come closer or given a hand or leaned in with my shoulder or some kind of thing to kind of take off some of that edge. You know, you're not alone. There's some contact here. Squeeze my hand, any of that kind of thing. But when it gets over to this place of, okay, we're going to like either track into the problem or track into just lingering in something that feels good in order to find out what else wants to happen, it's fairly likely that I'll approach that with hands-on. And if it's multiple sessions, that's probably going to be like the second or third session where I'm going to like make that a formal thing where we'll, with hands-on, support the open attention of, okay, now that we are here and we're can kind of clearly get the signal, maybe not clearly, but we're, we're impressing upon the signal that we're safe enough. 
what what do we notice that comes forward inside of that? Oftentimes that's the arousal, the incomplete arousal. I'm terribly unlikely to do touch on the first meeting, except in that stabilization kind of way. But I'm probably not going to try to take it so, so deep on a first meeting that I'm going to use those hands on too much, too fast. Okay, so somewhere in here by now, we probably have a real working knowledge of what we're doing together and how we're going to proceed. We'll either need to stop at one of the points before here, or we'll already have gotten to here like over just 10 minutes because some people just like run through all of that that we've already been talking about for the last hour. It's like, oh yeah, oriented. Oh yeah, I'm here. Oh yeah, okay, well, we'll just keep moving. Oh, what do you notice now? Oh, it comes up. Oh, it settles down. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I was really shooken up until you got here. It's nice that we were able to do this. Some people can just really move very quickly. And other people, it's like, okay, two, three sessions into this, we're finally able to really have a kind of clarity about how big a thing this is, how much attention this takes, what the pace and pattern of it all needs to be. But regardless, you can see that I'm just working on some kind of titration pattern here that essentially starts by trying to separate from the connection to the problem in order to make sure that there's some other place to go with the attention, naming that orientation, and then trying to establish that we can see things have modulation, rise and fall, that we can feel a little bit quieter back in the three by three. And that from there, it's just a matter of titrating more and more exposure and more and more allowance for the thing that clearly just, you know, wants to happen. By the time we've got some real sense that we're headed in the right direction, that things can be readily stabilized and all of that, activation, deactivation cycles can come and go. I'm very likely to go into a time series, a T model kind of thing and follow the storyline, looking for the opportunities to complete any self-protective responses that are called up and to integrate the narrative amongst other things. So there'll be this place where I'm like, okay, now we've, we've kind of like landed and settled in what we're doing together and there's enough resolution, I suppose, with what was already at the surface and already had to have its time and its day and we've been able to ride through that to where things are quieting. I'm very likely to move through the story at a non-superficial level. So since this might be the only time that I ever get to chat with you about the T model, I'm going to go ahead and just mention that I think this is one of the coolest, freaking awesomest things inside of our work. Um, my understanding is that Peter Levine has kind of offered up this T model time series model as a storytelling device for therapy. I, I'm not sure if where the etiology of it all comes together, but it's it's brilliant, you know, and um, it's different, but it's completely analogous to the way that improv theater and a whole bunch of Hollywood, including Pixar artists, develop storylines with their seven sentence story structure. Do you know that one? It goes like, 
Once upon a time, there was a blank, and every day blank, and until one day blank, and because of that blank, and because of that blank, until finally blank, and ever since that day blank, very simple structure that has these seven sentences that start the next part of the story, right? Like, so once upon a time, there was a guy who flew kites and every day he'd wait for the wind to climb up off the cliffs. One day there was no wind from dawn till dusk. Because of that, he walked into town. Because of that, he met a lovely young woman who was into paper airplanes until finally he decided that he would learn how to make a paper airplane too. And ever since that day, he's been flying paper airplanes, even if the wind doesn't blow. Seven sentence story structure. So it's kind of like this thing that's out there in the world and it's used in Hollywood. And if you're just watching a story, you don't necessarily know that there's this story structure behind it. But for the practitioners of storytelling and and writing and everything... There's this little frame that a whole lot of artists work off of. The T model is like that for listening to stories in therapy. If you learn the T model, you realize that it's pretty much the way you've always wanted to listen to stories in therapy or something like that. Anyway, it's a solidly helpful pattern to guide people's attention through a storyline of a traumatic event And it makes a lot more psychobiological sense than the typical trauma debrief prompt like, what was the worst thing that happened? Hello? Really? Is that what they say? Okay. I don't know if it's because of Peter or folks who have been translating his work, but there's a diversity of the T-series patterns out there now. There's just a whole bunch of different time sequence models in SE land. One of them One of them is to simply go through the entire narrative, the beginning, the middle, and the end, just pretty much passing from one thing to the next. In my opinion, aided by the formula, as talked about in episode 43, when I'm listening for troubled stuff and helping to respectfully pace that along with questions like, okay, that's what happened, and then what happened next, while leaning into any supportive or efficacious stuff, things that say self-protection or help, and I'm lending my attention as much there as possible without causing any friction. And at the edge of any friction, I'm returning to the flow of the story with, okay, so, so that's what happened. And, and then you said that and wow, okay. And that's what happened. And um, so then what happened? So like I'm leaning as much as I can on, on any positive thing and I'm pacing along any negative or deleterious thing. And here we go. We're just moving through the story, beginning, middle to end, by degree, with more or less reflection on things that suggest a more helpful or hopeful direction. In this model, you're essentially trying to get to the end of it all. At the end, if possible, there's usually a turn toward tracking the activation and hopefully like helping to process the related deactivation often aided by a kind of an invitation of something like, whoa, okay, that, that, that is a full story. Um, that happened and then that happened and that happened and you kind of relate back parts of it, you know? And then it's like, well, now that you're here and you just told me all of that, 
After having said all of that, can I ask you right now, after you've shared that story, you sitting there, me sitting here, can you say what you notice right now? And you know, again, that you might adjust that entree in any number of different ways. You might give it a menu. Can you say what you notice right now after sharing all of those things? Like are things more charged? Are they quieter? Are they louder or something else? Or if you're going to go on the constrained side, it's like, okay, can I, can I ask now after telling me about all of that, like XYZ stuff, can, can you say right now, do things feel louder than before or are they quieter than before? You might adjust the entree, but the idea is that you're going to run through the story Once you get to the end of the story, mark out that we've named the story and then name the moment here. Okay, so there was the story, and then we're also right here. And as you tell me that story right here, can you say what you notice about yourself right now? And you might still need to adjust all kinds of different ways to make that question successful, and you might not linger long inside of that investigation But that's a pattern. That's a T-model pattern. You run through the story. You get to the end. At the end of the story, you do the somatic investigation, and you take that as in smaller, as deep as the situation calls for. From here, you can repeat the storyline several times. So you you could do it once and go to the end and just ride this one single activation deactivation wave. You could get to the end and and find that there's just a tiny little bit of like, okay, well, you know, at least I get to tell somebody and they feel a tiny little bit of something like relief because they can tell somebody, but they're not ready to just fall and feel and deepen into that sense of relief. And you still have to do something. Well, the story still has the charge. So there's actually a way of just doing this over and over again. Some people talk about it like peeling back an onion, you know, or going through it layer by layer. So the idea, you go through the story several times, maybe each time adding a little bit more depth or a little bit more clarity or more details, maybe slowing it down slightly so that the first time, maybe sometimes like a a quick run through, you get all the way to the end, you try to linger in the end, but the story's got a lot of attraction. You go back to the story you try to just like slow it down a tiny little bit, a little tiny drag as you're going through the story and get to the end and maybe you do that activation deactivation cycle again. And so this is this is one model. In my experience, this is totally the preferred pattern for people who are going to tell the story anyway. Also for folks who find it pretty challenging to be paused during their storytelling and asked to track When the activation has the distinct feeling that it's not being allowed to kind of run out, but being held back during their storytelling, I'll usually turn and use this pattern to move through it so as not to frustrate that. And then at the end, have the opportunity to check in. And you can simply deepen that with every successful trip through the story. That's also a very helpful pattern for a first-time summary But again, I wouldn't feel nearly as comfortable with just going through that storyline if I didn't didn't have that formula, which I would say Stephen Hoskinson laid that on me in 2004, and I've just carried it with me ever since, maybe made my own little tweaks to it, but keep it moving forward. What do you notice next? Oh, tell me more about that. I think that might help you too. Okay, so a second 
T model, another T series, is starting at one place along the time sequence of what happened, like from before what happened, and then skipping to the corresponding period on the opposite side of the event. I'm not sure, but I think of it something like uh, leapfrogging, where you go from before the worst part of the event to some part of after the worst part of the event, and then back to before the worst part of the, the event. And you kind of back and forth, make your way closer to the T0 kind of place. My understanding is that this is meant to respond to an activation element that's from before the worst part, like as you're approaching the worst part, the activation is kind of thought to rise. And then you you kind of contact that activation and then you jump over to the other side where you're supposed to find like a corresponding deactivating element because you're moving away from the center worst part of the story or something like that. Now, I, I actually don't know because I, I've never done this pattern I, I talk to so many people who this is what they do. So I know that a lot of you do this and I, and I know a lot of my friends who are faculty do this and this is like a thing and I just don't get it. So I, you know, there's, there's no guarantee that T plus three is deactivating. You know, there might be some other bad thing that happens at T minus or T plus three as you're leaving the center worst part of a story or a thing that happens there's still other bad things to happen. Um, so it, it's it's just never made, it's never been presented to me in a way that I got it. But the cool thing is that I know that a whole lot of people get a whole lot of value out of this in some way that I probably am not representing very well here. So there is this other T model, which kind of goes back and forth across the the narrative. Now I can definitely think of a whole bunch of examples of Peter doing something similar to this where at the beginning of the story, he establishes a resource, and as he moves through the storyline, he returns back to the earlier named resource and then moves the story back forward again. And so he uses that resource as the counterweight to kind of help affect the deactivation. But I, I don't know about like jumping forward, back, forward, back. I, I, might, I might be misunderstanding how that goes. Now, all that said, there are certainly times when people jump back and forth while sharing their narrative. And in those situations, you often need to go along for the ride or even direct it back and forth so as to try to pick up some pieces that are are left behind or kind of missed as you go along. On to a third pattern, though, is this one more more my my typical style and um, definitely what I was taught by Stephen Hoskinson and, and kind of what I definitely see most of the time out there in the world. And that's when you simply establish the before dimension of the story, what was happening before there was any awareness that some danger was coming. You establish that T minus five kind of place. And then you follow the storyline bit by bit, noticing points of activation or particular interest along the way when you have enough influence over the process and the client's attention, or you're really good at gaining that influence quickly, you can pause the story, turn the attention toward building up the element of that story that kind of caught your attention, like ask more about that thing. If the activity is really at the surface, there's less need for building it up. But you essentially turn it up enough, that element enough, that when you pause and 
turn discrete attention to what do you notice now of it, you'll get a response of, I can feel this thing happening. And admittedly, there are different ways to invite the attention into that where you'll be successful. And there are lots of ways to have clients balk and miss the point. But the idea is that as you're running along the time series, there's going to be some activation signal that comes up that's attractive. And then the practitioner will kind of do what is necessary or what they can do in order to enliven that element to where there's enough of a signal of it that when there's a turn of attention requested, like, oh, you know, as you're telling me about that now, can I pause this for a moment and just ask you to just notice, what do you notice now? And now that's an open question. We could do the menued question, right? You know, as you're talking to me now, as we're, as we're, as that part comes up right now, do you, th- do you notice inside, like, do things kind of like feel a little lifted or maybe like pulling back a little bit somehow or, or even tight or, or something else? And we give some options of things that we imagine it could be. Or if it's a constrained option, when we make that turn, we could just be like, right, you know, and, and as we're talking now, does, does a little bit of that feeling, does that come up right now or not? Tiny little bit of that feeling come up? Does a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit of feeling come up? Does a a smidge, like the tiniest little sense of that feeling come up? There might be all kinds of ways that we also need to mitigate the request so that they'll be able to say yes to it by we find the right level of request that reflects what their attention would find its value at, something like that. So so the idea is that you're going to like use these little moments along the storyline to run discrete activation, deactivation cycles through. These may or may not include self-protective responses. They may or may not be big deals or little deals. Ideally, you know, they kind of build up to where they're not a big deal. They're not a big deal. They're a little bit bigger deal because you're going like T minus five, T minus four, T minus three. Yes, going toward the threat and getting more and more accustomed to riding the activation, deactivation waves in a pause amidst telling the story. A thing to consider is that we're not trying to get like super deactivation with each of these. A lot of times it's just enough deactivation and enough of a moment of reorienting briefly to the room and taking a pause from the story that we can say, okay, there's there's the storyline and paying attention to that and the responses and the reactions that it causes. And then there's the ability to process those and then to step away from that and then to return more or less under our own control. Thus, once we've seen that we've got that pattern, you know, and we've got a little bit of deactivation there, we, after a pause, we can then just kind of pick up on the storyline right where we left off. Okay, so there was that was happening. And then what happened next? And... Thus, we just kind of step out of the story, do this little processing thing, return to the story, move through it step by step. That way you'll ride along attentively watching for the next activation cycle. And when it comes up, you just kind of, oh yeah, this might be one of those moments, you know, you could have a contract for pausing, you could be slick in your questioning, like, oh, as as you mentioned that, do you get a little hint or feeling of something similar to that happening right now? Oh, you know, as as you tell me about that moment when you, when the 
car crashed. Can you hear the the sound of that? Can you hear the sense of the sound of that? There'll be little questions that you can guide people's attention to. You can ask open questions. Presumably these pauses related to T minus five and T minus four and T minus three and so on, they're all share related intensities of the activation growing as you move forward toward the center of the danger and away from it as you move away. So it's like just this rising action and kind of completing action, but it's associated as it goes, you can try to, the idea is to find the activation and related deactivation in the moment rather than say jumping out of the story. This is a completely classic pattern and actually it kind of a good place, I like to reference this one from the demonstration session that we referenced from Lauren Hager with uh, Roll on Columbia. I don't, I don't know if that's the name of it, but they end up singing that song, Roll on Columbia. And that that session from Peter Levine and, and Lauren Hager has a perfect demonstration of pausing the story, running the response, deactivating, picking right back up on the story just where they left off. And I think I'll say, this is also a pattern that Stephen Hoskinson really helped me to integrate as a storyteller, because those punctuations for deactivation, those are a great generator of energy in an audience. That's true in your sessions too. Having that sense of activation, deactivation can really give a sustaining force to the entire pattern of the storytelling. And of course, this one is great for integrating the coherent narrative as well as a means to elicit the self-protective responses and the cues of associated activation at different parts along the storyline so that when people think about that storyline in the future, they'll be maybe decathected or less activated by that. So this is this is just a classic one. And the difference between this pattern and the last one where you're moving from before and to afterwards and back and forth is just, for me, the quality of association between one part of the narrative to the next. And since integration is a big key of all this, that, that one just strikes me to make sense. Well, there's, there's a whole bunch more T models out there that you hear people talk about different patterns and such, but um, maybe the last one that I want to name here is that... Um, Actually, these are these are all questions that come up while doing the T series. Hopefully, you've all learned all of these um, inside of the session already. It's like all of the other patterns use these same questions, but you can run a T model just by using those kind of punctuation questions. Like every accident has moments that stand out of more significance, right? It's like there's before you had any idea something bad would happen. There's what was the first moment you realized something was wrong? The first moment you tried to do something about it? What was the worst moment? I I just go super gentle around that kind of question. I don't really ask that question, <laughs> but um but it's a significant moment in the in the sequence, the before, the middle and the end and whether that's the middle or not, it's definitely the climax. What was the worst moment? And then what was the first moment of assistance? Or when was the first moment that you realized that something was going to change? And the first moment you realized that you were going to be okay. And that's, that's a sensitive one too, because there can be lots of times when in these circumstances, people haven't already realized that they're going to be okay. So 
how you word that and how you approach that matters. In that last one, actually, that there's a classic prompt in there with the I'm alive line, which is something to say. It's like, it's important that if you're going to offer that prompt, I'm alive, you've probably seen Peter Levine do that. And I recommend that you tr- try to integrate that that's a good one to offer to people in that kind of way of like, you know, these, these are some of my own words, words that might not make any sense to you, but they wonder if you could just say them without really like thinking about them first. Just when you hear the words, go ahead and say the words and notice what you feel when you say these words. And then you offer some lines. Sometimes this prompt comes with picking up on lines that somebody has already said. So they say, I just, I realize I'm alive. That accident happened and I'm still alive. Something like that. You, you could feed that back to them and ask them to repeat that and notice themselves as they say that line. It's kind of a integrative kind of thing. Super. It's wonderful. And it's important not to use it too early on. It really comes at the end of a sequence when somebody has has experienced real deactivation after all of this accident stuff. Using it too early when the activation is still driving the the, the felt sense of things, like, oh gosh, I feel like something's wrong. It's It's important to leave off that I'm alive thing until things are starting to settle (laughs) and then it can land rather than be some kind of struggle to accept that this is true. I have to, I have to accept the fact that I'm still alive. Just to join with the exhaustive nature of this episode, I should say that there's another standard question that penetrates all of the T model things. And, and that's like, what's the next thing you remember? That line's pretty important because there will be times when people don't remember things and that can become an issue. Like, oh, I don't remember, and I, I'm, I'm trying to remember, and I can't remember. That frustration rarely helps. You generally just need to keep things moving forward. So uh, there's a great line out there that says, right, and so um, so you don't remember that, and, and what is the next thing you remember? And that moving things forward just helps to kind of keep the story sequence moving forward. So in this fourth model where you move from these questions, these bro- these kind of punctuated questions, you can you can do the storyline in a more compact way or more at the highlights. What was the first moment you noticed something was wrong? When was the first moment you did something tried to do something about it? When was the first moment somebody tried to help or something came that was helpful? When was the first moment you realized that things were going to turn away from the danger continuing, something was going to change. If time is limited, that can sometimes be a way to kind of move through the storyline and these punctuated moments. And of course, each of those questions along that sequence has their own potency. Some of them have a higher charge. That's What's the worst thing that happened? Not something that I ask, but something that you kind of become aware of. Um, nevertheless, that obviously has a bigger charge than, you know, they just all have their own different kinds of things to them and laying them out from beginning to end often gives you a kind of structure for success because of course there was a before the accident, there was an accident and then there was an after the accident and we're trying to integrate the entirety of that sequence, that process all the way through. Since we've been talking about all this stuff about the T models, the 
time series patterns. I should definitely say that if you enter into a sequence with somebody where you're entering into the storyline of an event that included an accident or something dangerous like this, if you get through some part of it and you're going to come to the end of your time together, it's important to jump to the end when like, you knew things were going to be okay or you knew something was going to change or you knew it wasn't going to last forever or you knew that there was going to be some other option for getting help out of this situation. Like you might have to adjust it because some people might really feel like it's still going on. And yet it's important if you kind of start into the sequence that you don't get a quarter way through T minus two and then, well, okay, that's all the time we have. Let's just settle here and leave from one another because the feeling state inside could very well just keep moving right through the sequence right up to T0 and get stuck there by oneself. So that would be a great place in that leapfrog kind of sense to jump from beginning to end. I don't know about jumping back to the beginning again, but definitely jumping to the end before um, you close if you haven't gotten to the end naturally. Okay, well, in this zone, you're meeting with somebody after an accident. I'm meeting with somebody after an accident. It's like which T model you do, totally up to you. You probably have a style that you learned at the training, and that's, in my opinion, the best place to work from. Because in a scene like working with somebody who's just been in an accident, you want to lean on what you're most comfortable with and what you feel most competent with. And it's kind of good to know that there are all these different styles and diversity out there, which might allow us to meet different people at different times more effectively. Definitely, whatever style we use, the thing in going through the storyline is to make sure we avoid doing it in a repetitive or non-pendulated, overly activated, overwhelming kind of way. If that's going to happen, and sometimes you just can't get people not to do that kind of referencing this bad thing that just happened. They just, they, it's just a drive that's being pulled in there, like a vortex or something. You'd, you'd at least, <laughs> well, you'd like to not be there if they're going to do that. And if you are there, you're probably just running some serious, keeping it moving forward, trying not to reinforce that pattern too much and helping to change it over time or whatever. But there will be times when you just can't not do it that way. It's They're rehearsing their distress. But I, I'd be willing to bet that even a timed sequence like talk for two minutes, walk around for two minutes, sit for two minutes, talk for two minutes, round and round again, stand, sit, talk, stand, sit, talk, um, with a timer going off. You know, literally, even if you, if you just had that structure, you'd be better off than just rehearsing the distress by being pulled like a moth to that kind of danger zone and not being able to steer a client's attention around it. So if... If there's no room whatsoever, then maybe you can leave <laughs> or maybe you can, um, you know, keep your heart open and just do the best you can. Short of not having any say over it, there's a whole lot of value into structuring how the storyline is told so that you can respond to the physiological response of it all more authentically and um, without it being so hyper aroused that it becomes 
overwhelming in its own self and repetitive and reinforcing of the stress response rather than what we're after here, which was we already got it stabilized. We already allowed things to move through that were wanting to happen and, and kind of settle out. And now we've gone back to collect things that are elicited by their state-dependent contact with the storyline. And yeah, can all that happen in the same first meeting? It certainly can. Does that happen because the person comes in and they're genuinely ready to move through the process super fast, or they weren't that impacted, or they've got a lot of experience with all of this, et cetera, et cetera? Or is this two, three, four, six meetings down the line? Yes, all of that. You know, there there is real value to being able to integrate the story and the coherent narrative and to be able to kind of be in your felt experience in relationship to the story of an accident. It's a very integrative kind of thing. And maybe as an endpoint, that's what we're looking for, to be able to tell the story without a whole lot of incomplete activation or activation that's elicited coming up from the story and to be able to move through all the different associated elements of the story. Far more likely, if you're able to meet with a person soon after they've been in an accident, give them the support and necessary signals to be able to run the initial part of the stress response that's still going through, settle that out, and then go back through and um, kind of apply this integrative element of our work. So join me now. Join me now in saying the truth of all of this. This is all so much easier said than done. Don't you think? I mean, really, because this, this thing can be tricky, super helpful and super necessary, but super tricky. With a fresh accident, I always steal myself. I always catch my breath. I look around. I spend time. I literally do reminding myself that we are human and that we get hurt and we're just going to do the best we can when we've gotten hurt trying to get through things. I also try to remember, I don't just try to remember, I, I tell myself, I say it here so that I'll encourage you to tell yourself, your signal matters. My signal matters. If I'm being introduced to someone soon after an accident that they've been in, I may be the first person they've met who's going to work beyond an intuitive hit of supporting them. Like, I'm, I'm informed. You're informed. We're informed about what comes next, you know, what that freeze, freezy business is all about why the pain signal comes up after the freeze starts to go away. And yeah, I was feeling numb and doesn't, wasn't feeling anything, but three days later I feel all this neck pain and I can't turn my head. Like we, we, have, a, we have a unique understanding of all of that and our ability to signal through to the organism, I am going to do my best to be a safety signal to you in this time when your biology is looking around for the signal that tells you you're no longer in that danger, our signal matters. So something to remember. It's tricky. It's not easy. You got to just kind of go into these situations carrying all of the skill and past that you've got. And you meet this person in this limited fashion, perhaps, and you simply do the best you can. And it's surely surely, surely, surely going to be better than if you weren't there. It's true. There are plenty of reasons it could go wrong. You could not be able to get in 
with them in the first place. Like there could be just a lack of contact can't happen. There can be medical or insurance issues that get in the way of people's ability to move through things. They're just attending to the medical system or they can't get better because that would make it so they won't be able to claim their insurance. So it, it just gets really confusing. You may not even be able to get through to deactivation with somebody and risk becoming associated with the sense of excessive activation to where they don't want to see you again. Now, that's not the idea. The idea is to try to start really, really small where your influence is only trying to change what's already going on for them in minute little steps so that your change signal is successful and accepted rather than you trying to get everything to change. It doesn't. And now you become associated with the fact that it's all this thing that they didn't like in the first place. There are lots of ways to try to make that challenge not be the thing that makes this not successful, but it's true. It's like sometimes like, gosh, I just couldn't get it to quiet down enough to where they would say, I see the worth and the value of this. That's a skill thing a lot of times, but while you're building that skill, it's just like there are times when you won't be able to do anything different than that. As it goes, they might start making progress out of freeze and feel more pain. And without warning, this may turn toward you. You know, like I felt fine until I saw had that session with you and then I started to feel my headache and I don't want to feel a headache. So there's a both a warning element to that and also keeping in touch afterwards element to that and a anticipation from you that just because we get things to quiet down even inside of a session doesn't mean the entirety of this response is done. And it it might have days, weeks, months of kind of wobbly, warbly rounds and things that it does. And it has a sequence. We want to know that sequence. And um, I guess there's another reason it could go wrong. You could not be able to really help is what I mean by going wrong. And that is that some people... They just want to be over this before they really are. And you get sometimes the opportunity to try to help. You even get some traction with that sometimes. You even can name together that it's getting better because you're doing this kind of work together. There can even be tons of other challenges. And this can be named as the one thing that's helpful. And you can think to yourself, we just need to be able to keep going so that we can quiet all this down. And some people, they will stop coming just because they already want it to be done. Bummer. Whatever you do, in these cases, don't go too deep too fast. And you're most likely going to be the very best help this person can have access to once they're no longer in harm's way. And for us, of course, I'm hoping that someday we're going to have a different culture than the current one, where there'll be somehow a general awareness amongst first responders and police and passerbys and even just people themselves who get into accidents, you and me, us, all of us. Hopefully the weight and gravity and severity and the reality of both what it means to have a physical intrusion, assault, a shock, and then also that there are um, there's a process going on here that is looking for definitive signals of safety and sufficient support in the time necessary afterwards 
for the arousal cycle, the autonomic stress response to be able to move through and not accumulate that stress and cause all kinds of consequences in the future that may very truly not be necessary. That's not going to happen tomorrow, but maybe someday. Until then, we can do the best we can. Don't you think? That's what I'm here for. How about you? Great. We're in this together, I guess. Awesome. I like your company. As for you, I'm hoping I'm hoping you're doing the very best out there with no accidents anywhere nearby and only good things coming. You take good care now. Bye-bye. And finally, here's a quick tracking twig moment for episode 95. Another thing that I won't actually be at, but I really wish I was. In July, July 16th, just a few weeks from when this is publishing, on Saturday, July 16th at 4 p.m., there's going to be a memorial celebration for Mark Schuler, who was a SE practitioner and assistant in the Bay Area. Many of us miss him quite a lot. He passed last year, and there's going to be a celebration for his life and everybody who knew him, going to be those who can be there, July 16th at Roberts Park, Diablo Vista area in uh, Oakland. If you're in the Bay Area, if you knew Mark, if you're kind of involved in the SE community, this, uh, this is a time to come together, which is a good point. You know, you can have a community and everybody just fizzles out, or you can have a community and people track one another, keep connected, and as we will, when we transition, we can be involved in, in each other's process with that, and that's, that's nice comfort. Okay, that's that. <laughs>